0: While there's always plenty of fresh builds to check out at SEMA, one of the ones that I was interested in having a look at is Rob's 26B or four rotor powered FD RX-7. Now if anyone's been following Rob's build on his YouTube channel, this build has been in progress for some time now but it's now at a point where it's actually starting to look like a car, it's got an engine in it that runs so it's a pretty exciting time. We're here with Rob to find out a little bit more about this build. Welcome to High Performance Academy's Tuned In Field Report podcast series. In these special midweek episodes we look back through our archives to find the best conversations we've had through years worth of attending the best automotive events across the globe. We've pulled the audio from these tech filled interviews with some of the industry's most well known figures for you to enjoy as a quick hit of insider knowledge. So Rob, 5 years in the build so far? 5 years since
1: my original dream was conceptualised.
0: Okay so when you take a completely stock standard FD RX7 road car and uh, the path to get it to what we see behind us which is essentially now basically full two frame, four wheel drive, four rotor, turbo charge, uh, that's a bit of a stretch so can you tell us how that progressed or was this exactly what you had in mind right from the outset?
1: So initially what happened was I had my 20B three rotor, street car, stock chassis and my brother beat me in a street race with his R35 GTR and the problem was traction. And so I was like, okay, he's got two more wheels driving the vehicle. I need to play his game. And so that that was the, the the seed, the kernel that started the desire to make the build a street monster. And I didn't know much about fabrication. I saw a lot of pictures, but it wasn't until Jim Connor 7 was released in 2014 that Ken Block was drifting an all-wheel drive custom Mustang. And I reached out to the guys that had built that to figure out how I could do something similar.
0: All right, so... Four wheel drive FDRX7s, at least to the best of my knowledge, I haven't seen another one in the world. So when you're starting with a fresh sheet of paper, obviously I just talked about Ken Blocks, Corn, obviously giving you some inspiration there. What uh, made you decide to go with the combination of drivetrain parts that you've got here? Yes, so what happened was
1: ASD Motorsports, which is ran by Ian Stewart, who is a Kiwi, yeah. uh, he used to work for Rod Millen, at least job shadowed or whatever the case is. And so I was inspired as soon as I told him my idea, he said, you're crazy. I love it. Let's work together. And so he supplied me a lot of information that encouraged me to move forward. So maybe maybe that I bit off more than I could chew at that point, but it, it was the way to accomplish my goal. So then it was, okay, let's, let's try and use as much of the unicorn drivetrain as possible. None of that worked. Zero. Absolutely zero. The Cedev, you know, that's meant for rallying. His car is a top speed of 150 miles an hour. And so then it came down to, what can, how can I solve the drivetrain issue? So I actually reached out to Hollinger. Hollinger? And uh, they said, hey, we have an RD6, six speed sequential that works with Mad Mike for the rotary side. But then on the backside, a lot of Australians use it for their GTRs. And so I was like, Okay, that's a potential solution.
0: Yeah so that that has been a popular choice. Personally one of the cars I was involved with back in the day, uh, R32 drag car ran exactly that combination with the RD6 sequential with the basically the Nissan uh, transfer case bolts to the back of that. So that gives you your four wheel drive transfer case and you've got your drive shafts running forward and back. So tell us about the rest of that drivetrain, what have you got in terms of the rear diff and the front diff? Yes,
1: so the differentials were both going to be BMW initially and so the front still is. And we're running 3.65 ratio, but then a lot of people convinced me to use a winter's quick change, like a lot of the uh, formula drift cars use. And I was leaning towards that because of the quick change ability to swap out gearing, and there's a lot of R&D left on this car, so why not be able to fine-tune quickly?
0: So you're not going to plan on running the same uh, final drive front and rear, so you're going to actually have a split between that. So essentially there's going to be some amount of slip in that center differential.
1: Right, so right now they're almost identical. One's 3.64, the other's 3.65, so there's that slight inconsequential slip. But I'll turn off the front while I'm testing the rear ratio to feel power band issues.
0: So I think that's the important thing as well to mention there with the R32 GTR, well, the GTR transfer case, uh, it is isn't a mechanical fixed uh, split. It basically is a rear wheel drive gearbox and then it has a chain drive to the front and using hydraulic pressure, you can apply more or less pressure to put more or less drive to the front. So uh, how are you controlling that? Are you varying that or are you going to run a fixed pressure to, for a fixed amount of front drive? Right. Well there's two uh, two approaches. One is that I'm going to run the stock Atesa system.
1: And that has a lot of the inputs that I'm looking for. You know, wheel, wheel speed, yaw, and all the other sort of controls. But I do want to make sure I can control that. And like you said, the fixed ability, I might control it with the, the hydro brake as to also being able to set it on, off, you know, 50-50 or 100-0. That's going to be something that's going to shake down throughout the videos.
0: All right, so four-wheel drive, drivetrain, we've kind of covered that off. I want to get into the engine. But before we, we talk about the engine, the fact that it's now essentially fully cheap framed Uh, was that essential to fit all of the components or was that in terms of just getting things where you wanted them to be and getting the weight down? So initially I built the vehicle in CAD. That was my goal was to see if it was possible
1: within the 28 inch wide frame of the RX-7 and it could, it it would have been very difficult, things would have been shaved, but I could have done it. And then the next question became length. Well, the, the GTR transfer case would be directly under the butt of the passenger and I felt that would be really difficult and the car is meant to have more than one person. That's, that, emotionally that's what I wanted and so extending that vehicle put the transfer case closer your, under your knees and that pleased or that satisfied the, my requirements and, and of course a, a longer vehicle has you know, better stability at high speeds which that's one of the things that, one of the big boy adult goals that I want to do with this vehicle is, is break Mazda's uh, salt flat record
0: That's a, that's a big aim yeah. to go for but you've probably got a pretty good package to do it uh, That engine, the four rotor, again there's, there's not a lot of quad rotor engines out there. Mm -hmm. Mazda obviously used them themselves in their uh, Le Mans prototype car, or a Le Mans winning car I should even say. But uh, doing this in the aftermarket is a little bit problematic. There's a few people making the components. Can you talk us through what's gone into this particular engine? Because I know you've had uh, a few trials and tribulations along the way. Very much so. Uh, One of the things I've, I've come into
1: is that I'm a very public person. I share both my successes and my failures because that shows the younger audience, the people getting into the rotor world that there are people that are doing these superlative things but making mistakes and so the problem I've found is as I push this ceiling further I realize that you're starting to get into race teams that hide their secrets that they, they don't want you to know their competitive advantage where really to me i don't have I don't need a competitive advantage it's YouTube i 'm not racing and so uh, that has been probably one of the biggest challenges that you know that there are groups out there a handful of people but they're very careful on how they share information uh, that 's why i'm kind of excited that as I find things out, I share them with the world, and that helps the rotary
0: community as a whole. Yeah, definitely, there's uh, there is a lot of secrets as I've seen that go into producing a reliable rotary engine. Uh, this one's actually come from uh, pretty close to our home, from uh, Carl Thompson, all the way in New Zealand. So, can you tell us how that that deal came about? Yes. Yeah, so, Carl has been a friend of mine for a long time, and when my first engine starts,
1: when my first engine stalled in production. Uh, I still have about ninety percent of it. But there were concerns about it being not in billet. You know, it's it's, it's the traditional irons with grafted with the, the bearings. Uh, then the question was, okay, has, has billet improved enough to produce reliability? They can produce power on the drag strip, but can they produce power reliably? And so this is one of the very first, it's the first in the United States, but one of the very first billet for rotors to run. And as that, Carl has told me in, in, in secret or in, in confidence that there are a lot of experimental things on this block. So being in my spot, that experimental aspect is kind of worth the risk because of the YouTube payoff could be worth it.
0: Just to give some background info for those who aren't aware, uh, Carl used the four rotor in his previous drift car which was a Toyota Arista. For those who are interested in learning more, we do have a video that we can link to about that. However, we're talking about your car here. I want to get back into this engine. So the billet versus the cast plates, so can you talk us through, first of all, when you're putting together an engine that never really existed off the showroom floor from Mazda, what is required to make a four-rotor engine out of a 13B or even a 20B? Absolutely. Well,
1: uh, speaking first about the cast uh, uh, the cast approach, you, you actually take more bearings and put them further inside of the motor. But otherwise, that eccentric shaft will flex and you, you start you know, having weird issues with the rotors. This, or at least the con- current solution is to put bearings on this, well, second and third or second and fourth irons, so that way you you constrain it a little bit more. There still is not, in the vast majority of four rotors, a a bearing in the very centre iron. Uh, That is something that might be slightly different in this motor.
0: All right, so you've talked about the the modifications there necessary. Obviously, it's a custom uh, billet eccentric shaft as well to go along with that. But uh, then the limitations of those cast plates. So, Where do we see the reliability problems? What actually fails and why do they fail? Yes. So what happens is because now you're putting bearings inside of these cast plates that weren't supposed
1: to be load bearing like that, they will shatter and shear because of that new piece grafted into them. As for billet, I don't know the answer to what fails first. I don't know what the weakest link is. And that's kind of what we'll find out together.
0: Yeah, it would be interesting to see. I mean, billet, obviously, in the piston engine uh, world has become the go-to for a lot of the import guys making big power. Uh, I can't personally see any reason why it's not going to work for a rotary and we have seen some pretty impressive results from some of the rotary engines already running billet in drag applications. Now in terms of power levels, what are you expecting out of this when it is all fully dialed in and you're giving it as much boost as you can? Absolutely. So the issue for me
1: has been YouTube pays to be extreme and even though I'm a crazy person willing to try something weird, it's always been grounded with some sort of logic and so there's a video out there, old video, of a four-rotor doing 1664 um, at, at the, the crank on an engine dyno. And so my goal is to exceed that.
0: There's no point being second best, right?
1: Exactly. exactly. There's no point in that. And, of course, daily operations, I shouldn't say daily, but when I go to use this vehicle on the street, you know, right now you'll see I have a very small exhaust housing on this to make the nastiest thousand horsepower to the wheels possible. But as we go, we, the very first thing I'm going to do after SEMA... Is an engine dyno environment. All A-B testing, every exhaust housing and tuning as we go.
0: Let's talk about that turbocharger, what actually have you got bolted onto it at the moment? Yes, that is the largest Garrett's, that is is Garrett's largest ball bearing turbo, it's a 106 millimeter turbo. So that should be a fairly healthy starting point, what sort of power level can that turbo support?
1: Well for me it's going to be a little hypothetical, uh, but compared to my three rotor where I was running a smaller turbo, the rotaries love to breathe, and so you know, you really compared to a piston engine, you that turbo is a 2800 horsepower turbo for a piston engine, maybe 13 to 1400 horsepower rotary. I, anything above that would be potentially being a little positive.
0: In terms of fueling, what fuel is it going to run on? E85. So, a, a, a standard go to obviously gives you the fuel characteristics that are going to support that boost. Uh, with relative reliability on the engine. Uh, Let's go through the electronics package of the car. What have you got managing the engine itself? Yeah. So this is running the the Adaptronic M6000
1: and I need all of those extra modules that the 6000 offers, not only for controlling the fuel injection or the ignition, but also I have, I'm a a tuner and I'm I'm a electronics guy by trade. And so I love management, my measurement. So they have additional modules for data input and output
0: what are you using for, for managing that data? Is that all through the Adaptronic or have you got a separate uh, logger somewhere in the car that's going to be a central logging hub? Yeah, currently, the Adaptronic is is my goal is to get everything to the Adaptronic
1: and potentially in and out through CAN. So, for example, exhaust gas temperatures is an AEM unit that controls each of the four, But again, run through the CAN bus. So I I have a dash that can control logging. But again, I'm trying to centralize. Keep it simple.
0: One of the problems particularly with high powered rotaries is unfortunately they don't have a great reputation for being reliable, particularly if you're sort of starting to push fifteen, sixteen hundred 1600 plus flywheel horsepower. So is there anything in particular with the adaptronic you're using as safety features to, to help basically prevent damage occurring to the engine? Absolutely. So two of my
1: biggest failures on motors, I've, I had my three rotor running for years but as soon as I started messing with fuel. I disabled, I personally disabled one of the fuel safety cuts and uh, electronic fuel system caused me some problems. And so that's one of the biggest things: is watching differential fuel pressure, allowing the electronic to do its safety cuts uh, and me stepping away from that. Because by default, it it does do those things. I got involved and I caused myself some harm. So, So
0: basically, did the computer do what it was designed to do?
1: Yes, very much so.
0: Now, in terms of the rest of the fuel system there, can you tell me what you're running in the way of injectors and fuel pump, etc. to yeah. keep the engine fueled? Yeah, so what I
1: started with is a dual brushless fuel pump system with low and high staging. So I can go, you know, kind of a binary situation, both off, one on low, two on low, one on high low, and then both on high. And that's that's a, a Holly system. It's I think it's a TI automotive pump and capable of a lot of, like, but almost six gallons per minute. Flow.
0: So when you say that with the, these brushless pumps, you've got a speed controller. So uh, depending on the controller you're using, you can have basically infinite control of, of the pump output. You've got high and low. So is that just two fixed levels of, of fuel flow output from those pumps? That is correct. Yeah. All right. Look, uh, the cars here it's at SEMA it's uh, running, which is great. Is yes. obviously still a little bit of work left to do on the car. When do you actually envisage this project being finished and hitting the streets?
1: Well, first step is actually getting the block broken in. And because there are billet pieces, so bringing them up to temp, down to temp together, multiple oil changes, watching for bearings, all of those sort of things. So I've got a thorough break-in process before I even think about any sort of turbocharger
0: introducing itself into my life. So you're essentially there going to be running this naturally aspirated to start with and then adding the turbo back in?
1: That's correct. I may run the turbo as, uh, as part of the exhaust, but the intake system will be disconnected.
0: Now, also just something you caught up on there that you just mentioned, uh, breaking the engine in, looking for bearing material. And I did notice while I was looking over the car, you've got a uh, fairly unique take on an oil filtration system. So often when we're trying to look for material in the, in the oil, we can have samples taken or you can cut the filter open, which is a horrible job. It's really messy and it's time consuming. Uh, you've got a quite a unique way of actually viewing if there is anything in the oil. Can you tell us about that? Yes.
1: So what I did is I purchased a, it's a clear view. Oil filter, and as long as that material is larger than 60 microns, it's it's a it's a mesh screen, a stainless steel mesh screen. That as soon as the oil exits the dry sump pan, goes through the scavenging pump unit, and before it makes it into the tank where it could potentially sit and settle, it goes through this screen, and you can basically force air into there after it's running, and
0: see what's sitting on that screen. So a quicker way of catching on to a potential bearing problem inside of the engine rather than Waiting for the inevitable outcome, or alternatively, cutting your filters open.
1: Right, right exactly. You know, I, I'm a big fan of like if you know if you don't look at it, there's no problem.
0: But I need to, I need to face the music and see it ahead of time. Yeah there's one theory that's uh, what you don't know doesn't hurt you but unfortunately seldom does that work out when we're talking about a very expensive engine. Now just because you did mention that as well, uh, I haven't touched on it so far, the the lubrication system on the engine uh, is a full dry sump system. So can you just talk to us about whether that was a requirement uh, for this particular engine, could you not work with the factory Mazda wet sump system?
1: Well, that was something that Carl said, hey, you, you know, I, I, I took what he said. And that was one of those things that he was like, you need to do this. And of course, you know, still, I love to ask why. But the control I have over the system is wonderful. And you know, I, I have each of the I so I have six lines, five lines, each of the irons, each of the places that there is a bearing gets lubrication. And it's been wonderful because even when we did the engine test on the stand, we were able to fire up the oil pump and filter the system before even turning the, the block over So that's been a wonderful thing for just taking steps. I love baby steps when it's such an experimental system. So yeah, having external dry sump has been a totally new experience to me, but it's been wonderful for preventing damage.
0: Oh look, Rob, it's an incredible build. We can't wait to see what it actually does when it does hit the dyno. Thanks for your time. And if our viewers aren't already following you, how can they get hold of you on your YouTube channel?
1: I make it really easy to find me, Rob Dom, D-A-H-M, on almost every social media avenue, and that's where you find me.
0: Perfect, thanks Rob. Thank you so much. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to leave us a review on whatever platform you've chosen to listen to it on. It goes a long way to helping us get the word out there. All these conversations and much more are also available in full on our High Performance Academy YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe.